Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, August 11th, 2023. Today is a do each week. We check in with Publishers Weekly for news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. In what continues to be a very busy summer for publishing, Big Five publisher Simon & Schuster has announced it's found a new buyer. Yeah, big news this week. Uh, Private investment firm KKR has reached a deal with Paramount Global to acquire Simon & Schuster uh, for $1.62 billion uh, in an all-cash deal. And I have to say... After everything that's gone on for the last two years, that is a potentially pretty good outcome for Simon & Schuster. Of course, it comes after more than two years in limbo for employees at Simon & Schuster. And, you know, possibly a pretty good outcome for the publishing industry as well. The deal comes exactly one year after the DOJ's blockbuster trial to block Penguin Random House's acquisition of Simon & Schuster. And, you know, given everything that's happened in the wake of that failed deal in terms of the economy and what we're going through post-COVID in terms of the publishing business and its spiking sales and supply chain uh, challenges and rising costs, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, so let's get right to it. First and foremost, the sale price, $1.62 billion. That is a number that is, as was expected, well below the $2.175 billion that Penguin Random House had previously agreed to pay for Simon & Schuster, which, of course, is the country's third largest trade publisher. But remember, the Penguin Random House bid was way, way above what was considered to be the top end of the price range for Simon & Schuster, like half a billion more. Uh, And it had to be because there was significant risk uh, for Paramount in agreeing to sell to Penguin Random House, given that Penguin Random House was already the largest publisher by a mile and the potential for a regulatory challenge. Obviously, those fears were realized. Uh, The deal was blocked by the Department of Justice. You know, and early in the first attempt to sell Simon & Schuster, my boss Jim Milliot wrote in an article for PW that $1.7 million would likely be the upper edge of the price range for Simon & Schuster. And, you know, a year later, that's about where we landed. That is the neighborhood, $1.62 billion. And, you know, I'm not hearing of any regulatory issues with this yet. It's been pretty quiet reaction to the deal. So everyone that I'm talking to anticipates that this is actually going to get done pretty quickly. In an earnings call this week, Paramount CEO Bob Backish said he was very happy with the price. And then he explained why. He did a little math for us on the call. Um, He basically told us that in the end, Paramount actually came out even a little bit ahead of where it would have been if Penguin Random House had actually been able to complete the deal. Backish said Paramount expects to yield approximately $1.3 billion in net proceeds, which they're going to use to pay down debt, he said. And he broke down the $1.62 billion sale price uh, and how he got to actually coming up with more money than the PRH deal. Because in addition to the $1.62 billion, they got $200 million in the termination fee paid by Penguin Random House. Uh, there was also legal fees paid by Penguin Random House. Uh, and there was cash flow that was gained from strong sales by Simon & Schuster over the last year. So they had really good cash flow there. Indeed, Simon & Schuster posted record sales over the last year, uh, quite fortuitously. And in the end, that means that the company, according to Backish, is realizing approximately $2.2 billion of gross proceeds from the Simon & Schuster sale, even with the DOJ issue last year. 
And because the house is going to a private equity firm, this is good for the industry, we think. It means that the big five is going to stay the big five, at least for now. Uh, when the deal closes, Simon & Schuster is going to become a private company. That's not such great news for us because that means we won't be getting their public reporting numbers anymore. Uh, we'll be down to just three big five publishers reporting. That'll be Hachette, Penguin Random House, uh, and HarperCollins. Uh, Simon & Schuster will continue to be led by CEO Jonathan Karp, so good news there. And, you know, it's also worth noting, too, one final thing here is that HarperCollins was a finalist. And if this deal had happened, we would have been on track for a big four. Now, our listeners may recall that I have always believed that Harper was going to make a strong effort to land Simon & Schuster, that it just was not going to let this opportunity slip through its hands again. Uh, But alas, Harper's bid was considered a long shot. And indeed, Paramount, I'm sure, was not eager to test the resolve of the DOJ again by attempting to sell Simon & Schuster to another big five rival. So here we are. I guess if it's good news for the publishing industry, it's that KKR is going to keep a big five intact, at least for now. It's not often that the sale of a company to a private equity firm is expected to yield a good outcome for anyone other than investors. Yeah, no question. Um, An acquisition by a private equity firm will often be viewed very negatively by many, and that's true in this case, too. Some will be concerned that KKR, by its nature, will put profits over literature uh, at the same time. Uh, After what came out during the DOJ trial last year, being bought by one of its competitors was likely not going to be a good outcome for Simon & Schuster or the publishing industry. You know, whether it was Penguin Random House last year or potentially Harper this year, the end result of another big five buying Simon & Schuster would have been consolidation and job cuts. And in the end, a smaller number of firms competing for acquisitions. So, you know, while private equity firms are often viewed negatively, it's actually kind of a positive in this deal is that we're going to continue to have uh, a big five. And at least KKR has some kind of track record in the book business, too. In fact, KKR brings back Richard Sarnoff. He's the chairman of media at KKR. Uh, and Sarnoff, of course, is an experienced publishing leader. He actually played a key role in making Random House, the largest trade publisher in the country, as one of the architects of Bertelsmann's purchase of Random House back when he was CFO of Bantam Doubleday Dell. Uh, in a letter to staff Simon & Schuster CEO Jonathan Karp noted that he has known Sarnoff for more than two decades, going back to when they were both working at Random House and said that Sarnoff obviously understands uh, the nuances of the book business very well. And in his prepared remarks, Sarnoff said KKR sees a compelling opportunity, that's his words, to help Simon & Schuster become an even stronger publisher by investing in the expansion of the company's capabilities, its distribution networks, and, of course, in maintaining its 99-year legacy of editorial independence. Now, look, people are going to say that KKR is going to do what private equity firms do, and that is it's going to shine up Simon & Schuster and pare it down, perhaps, and spin it off in five years. And, yep, that is what private equity firms do, and it's certainly possible. But given Sarnoff's experience seems to me like Simon & Schuster is about to enter a growth period here, that it's actually going to be built up with more strategic acquisitions before its next move. In fact, in making the announcement, KKR promised to, and I'll quote them here, support numerous growth initiatives, including across various genres and categories and in the international markets. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see if indeed Simon & Schuster gets bigger before it actually gets sold. And for Simon & Schuster employees, 
who have basically been in limbo for the last two years, while delivering record sales, I might point out, thank you to Colleen Hoover, of course, it means there's going to be at least some period of growth ahead. There's not been anything happening in terms of growth at Simon & Schuster while the company's been in limbo. So there's certainly the potential here for things to be better than they were at Simon & Schuster. And they have to be happy, too, about KKR's pledge to create an equity ownership program that will potentially provide all of the company's employees, that's more than 1,600 employees, the opportunity to actually get a piece of the company. And look, that can be very big. Just weeks ago, KKR sold audio service RB Media uh, for a billion dollars. That's about five years after the company, after KKR bought the company, double what it paid. And what we're hearing is that RB Media employees who were part of that equity program are getting some pretty sizable checks. So uh, potential good news there for Simon Schuster employees as well. I guess we can come back one final time and note that, yeah, this again, this is private equity. So it raises legitimate questions and people do have some concerns. Uh, the Authors Guild said it hopes KKR will defer to the editorial leadership at Simon & Schuster and noted that uh, the company is already running pretty lean, which it is. And, you know, the Guild said that, you know, please don't fire anyone, basically, that the company can't afford to lose employees or have its editorial decisions and processes undermined. That's a very valid concern. Uh, the, the Authors Guild is right to raise it. And I think statements like that hit at the reality that this move is probably not the final move for Simon & Schuster, that we are going to have a sale again at some point in time, uh, though we don't know when. But what we're seeing across the industry right now as we come out of COVID with layoffs and cuts and other tough measures to address surging costs. It's really hard to know what the future holds for any of us in this business. It's a mixed bag for everyone in the publishing industry right now. And for Simon & Schuster, after a really tough two years in limbo, at least this phase is over, barring, of course, any unexpected issues completing the sale. A controversial new law in Texas will require that vendors to Texas public schools review and rate for sexual content any books they plan to sell. Books found to be sexually explicit would be banned entirely from Texas schools. This week, Andrew, you reported that Follett, the nation's largest distributor of books to schools, is preparing to comply with the new law and has apparently reached out to publishers for help with rating their own books. Yeah, it's a really interesting development and not unexpected. But as I was starting to look into how publishers are going to deal with Texas, if this new law, HB 900, actually goes into effect on September 1 as planned, there's a legal challenge out there, of course. Uh, How is that going to work? And at that time, an anonymous tipster sent me the text of a memo from Follett officials to publishers asking for help in complying with the law's requirements that vendors rate and review pretty much every book that they're going to sell or have sold. In short, Follett, which is the nation's largest distributor of books to school libraries, is preparing for the law to go into effect and is asking publishers to help rate their own books, to send Follett a list of books that they deem to have no sexual content, a sort of clean list, you might say. Uh, Those books would then be made ready for sale right away uh, via Follett while titles with sexual content of any kind would not be immediately available, pending being sent to a third party to receive a rating of its sexual content. Uh, As you know, books that come back rated sexually explicit under the law would be barred from schools and thus not be available for sale uh, in Texas. Now, it's sort of an understandable request. Follett is in a tough spot. 
they have to do this under the law or they face being barred from doing business with Texas schools. And that's just a huge business for Follett. But as you might expect, publishers and other stakeholders are balking at this request. So I reached out to all of the major publishers. And while they all de declined to comment directly on the Follett memo, multiple publishers confirmed the memo's details. And on background, multiple publishers sort of bristled at the request noting that while they understood the bind that Follett is in, the company was basically asking them to be complicit in an act of censorship and one that would not sit well with their authors. One publisher, Hachette, actually went on record, uh, not about the Follett memo directly, but to broadly reject the idea of rating their titles for sale, saying that the company, and I'll quote them here, that the company strongly disagrees with the idea that rating our books to flag certain content or having retailers or wholesalers do this is appropriate or helpful. And in a stronger rebuke, the Authors Guild, the nation's largest author advocacy group, and also a plaintiff in the lawsuit seeking to, seeking to strike down HB 900, is actually urging publishers not to comply with Follett's request, agreeing that it would be an act of censorship and rightly pointing out that once these lists are created, these clean lists and these other lists where books are banned because they're sexually explicit, that it would be really difficult to sell those books to many school systems, not even not even just those in Texas. But if those lists got out, it could be you know harder to sell these in other states as well. Uh, and that the lists tacitly suggest that the publishers think that these books, in fact, are somehow inappropriate. For their part, followed officials did not address the memo. And in a brief email said only that Follett is aware of the law in Texas and will comply and will help its customers comply. A judge in Austin has set August 18th to hear a motion to block the law from going into effect. What's your read on the situation and any possible future developments? Yes, so much to say here. Um, I'll try to be brief. First off, you know, I think there may be a tendency to look at Follett asking publishers to rate their own titles as, you know, not necessarily a bad guy here, but, you know, it's a, that's not a very good thing to do. And you know, I don't think it would be fair to villainize Follett in this case. I don't do a ton of reporting on the company, but the people that I do report on tell me that Follett and Britain Follett, its CEO is the, the company in general has a track record of supporting libraries and literacy and the freedom to read. And we understand that they're in a tight spot here. This is a law. They have to abide by it in Texas. And this is a huge market for them. I'm actually quite sure that Follett does not want to be rating books, that this is an incredible burden on them, in addition to being, well, as publishers and authors say, just wrong. The state should be not imposing these standards, and I think Follett probably agrees with that, even though they have to somehow find a way to comply with this law. And to these standards, the standards that are being imposed by HB 900 really are very vague. Nobody really knows what sexually explicit means, and the state has yet to issue guidance on that. Uh, and, you know, I think they're unconstitutionally vague, which is what the lawsuit asserts. But we know the way that, you know, it has been used in so many states where these kinds of laws are advancing. And basically, critics say that, you know, deeming books sexually inappropriate or harmful to minors has basically been a, a fig leaf for attacking the LGBTQ community. So I expect that to be a big issue that will come up when the lawsuit goes uh, before the court in Texas on August 18th. But I think my bigger takeaway is that, that this situation really pulls into focus just what's at stake in this, you know, now years long attack on libraries and schools and the freedom to read. And by that, I mean that 
there really is a lot riding on this August 18th hearing in Texas. You know, I look at it this way. If the law is allowed to go into effect in Texas, if it's not struck down, you're going to see many more states follow with similar laws. Uh, word is Missouri already has a similar book rating bill teed up and ready to go. Now, the good news is that we just had a very favorable ruling in Arkansas on their harmful to minors law. Uh, that two, two provisions of that law were shut down. And there was actually ample case law out there, as cited in the Arkansas ruling, to suggest that the Texas law has a good chance of being struck down as well. But I think we've also reached a point where the lawyers alone are not going to win the day for freedom to read advocates here. If there's a glaring takeaway from this whole situation for me is that the publishing industry needs to sort of rebuild and fortify and maintain its defense of the freedom to read, which means an organized political effort that can unite right and left around the idea to quote uh, ALA executive Tracy Hall here, the idea that free people read freely. And I think we have a lot of work to get back to where we need to be. And hopefully we can do that work and not find ourselves again in a situation like we're in now in which so much is riding on the decision of a single judge in Texas. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up next on Velocity of Content, in his new book, The Gutenberg Parenthesis, media analyst Jeff Jarvis celebrates the noisy, maybe even messy, information environment in these digital days. And while some may feel nostalgia for the days of information curation, Jarvis says we can and should learn to appreciate information superabundance. For the mass media that was really... I, I despise the idea of the mass because it, it, it is a way to not listen to people and not understand them as communities and individuals. So I, I, I celebrate the death of the mass. There is a, a researcher in uh, Denmark uh, named uh, Michael Bong Peterson who contends that the filter bubbles we live in and we do live in them are the ones we create in our real lives. When we choose to move into a community or take a job or join a club or go bowling with people who are like us. Celebrating Information Abundance with Jeff Jarvis, next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.